This official podcast coverage of AusCert's 2012 conference is brought to you by Arbor Networks. Smart, available, secure. Datacom TSS. Discreet, niche, tailored. And Sophos, secured. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special Whiskey Business podcast from AusCert's 2012 conference on the Gold Coast. I'm Patrick Gray. The following is a full recording of a presentation by the University of Auckland's Peter Goodman, where he discusses contactless payment systems. It's a nice overview that points out uh, some of the dumber implementation mistakes that have been made by the card brands and issuers. Like they'd make any mistakes. But uh, without further delay, here it is, Peter Goodman's 2012 AusCert talk. Okay, so I'm going to be talking about uh, contactless payment systems, and there's not technically there's not that much to talk about in terms of how they work. I mean, it's basically a standard credit card payment mechanism, typically EMV, running over a RFID or NFC near-field um, transport. In the US, it seems to be you take track one and two off your MagStripe credit card and dump it in plain text over the wireless interface. The banks claim it isn't, but people have analysed it and found out that it is, and I'll go on to that in a minute. Generally, in the rest of the world, um, it's the standard EMV protocol, which is a reasonably secure, if not always securely implemented, um, contactless, or sorry, credit card chip and pin um, payment mechanism. So basically, it's a standard mechanism, established mechanism, relatively secure mechanism, just with the physical channel removed. You don't have to plug your card into a reader anymore. You can just wave it near a reader. Um, there's also a bunch of proprietary protocols for typically stored value cards. The kind of first generation is things like Philips MyFair. Uh, MyFair is completely broken from top to bottom. Basically, pretty much every generation of that that they feel it has been broken completely. Um, and then there's a pile of second generation systems like the Korean T-Money, um, which we don't know much about. It's entirely undocumented. It's used for bus passes and, and buying cans of Coke and things like that. So these are for micropayments. Tend to be proprietary, not very well documented and they're usually designed to work in areas where EMV or credit cards in general can't work. You typically can't use a credit card to buy something for 10 cents or 20 cents because the overhead and charges uh, make it prohibitive. And also they're not limited to the awkward plastic card form factor. So if you've used any of the T-Money equivalents or you know, on local buses and trains or whatever, there'll be these little plastic fobs or you know, plastic figurines, something like that. Um, so they're not required to comply with this rather difficult credit card form factor. And finally, there's phones, and they typically they emulate a standard credit card. So you've got a sorry, a standard contactless credit card. So the NFC payment mechanism in your phone, as far as the reader is concerned, it's talking to a contactless credit card, and that's about it. Um, since phones have their own built-in power source, they can also initiate communications. So basically, they can act as RFID readers as well as just these passive card devices. The problem with this is there's a whole number of competing standards and protocols and mechanisms and everyone's fighting it out. Probably in the long run what's going to win is the basic card emulation because any card reader, any standard reader that can process credit cards will also be able to process a card emulating um, phone. Um, so basically that's it. So EMV protocol with the interface replaced by a wireless one instead of a physical contact one. And that's the end of the talk. <laughs> no, it isn't. No. This is me. I'm going to suck. I'm going to. I'm going to point out problems in this thing. But yeah, it, it really is. It is very simple. It's just a standard something that needs formerly used a physical channel, and now it's being broadcast wirelessly. 
So here's a brief history of payment systems. Um, thousands of years ago, you had barter. I will give you a cow for your two sheep, something like that. And that was a direct realization of value. I got something that I could directly use in exchange for something you could directly use. It was replaced by bullion coinage, gold and silver. Again, gold and silver has a direct value. So if you're going out to buy something and you have to hand over a pile of gold, you have a direct, you know, direct contact with the value that's being exchanged. Then it got replaced by fiat currency, paper notes. So these are bits of paper which in themselves aren't worth much, but we've come to associate value with them. So again, if I want to go out and buy a shiny thing, and I pull out this wad of banknotes and think, you know, this is kind of a lot of money. I don't necessarily need the shiny thing that badly. Removed from that again is checks. There's no direct, you know, paper currency anymore. There's just a bit of paper and you can write a check on pretty much anything. You don't, we're used to using a, you know, bank printed check, but you can write it on a blank piece of paper. People of courts have found that something, a promise to pay written on, scratched into a door, which was a very unusual circumstance, which is why it went to court, uh, was a valid check. Um, Going beyond that again is credit cards. Now with credit cards, we're even further removed from the value. The, the, the perception that you're parting with something of value is much less. So every step of the way, you're further and further removed from the actual monetary value or the object of value that you're parting with. And that's why people run up huge credit card debts because they see a shiny thing they want. Here's my credit card, I've got the shiny thing now. And it isn't until a month later or whenever they get their statement that they actually, this, this thing hits them, that they've actually spent a huge amount of money on this. Um, smart card credit cards, again, with, with standard credit cards with the ZipZap machines, you had to actually sign your name on a piece of paper. And signing is a powerful act because we're used to signing contracts and legal documents. So when you sign your name onto something saying, I'm agreeing to pay several hundred dollars for this iPad, um, again, you're very physically involved in this transaction. With, with chip-based credit cards, you enter your PIN and that's it. With contactless credit cards, it goes even further. You don't do anything at all. You say, I want this bip, okay, it's mine. So you have no perception that you're actually parting with any value. So the further removed from this expression of value, the more likely you are to part with money. Um, and yeah, the further you go down that chain I gave in the previous slide, the more likely you are to simply spend that money, which banks absolutely love. Um, banks love credit cards. Credit cards, are, are, they're basically, um, High-risk unsecured loans. So the interest rates that the banks get on these are phenomenal. Um, it's actually not that easy to find out just how much um, outstanding debt there is on credit cards. I know for New Zealand because it was published recently. Uh, they've got 5.6 billion owing, of which 3.5 billion is attracting interest. So if you're a credit card issuing bank, you're collecting, let's say, 15% interest on $3.5 billion. That's absolutely phenomenal for these banks. The US has $800 billion in credit card debt, outstanding credit card debt. Um, there's a huge bunch of statistics on that creditcards.com site on, on various aspects of that. Um, in the US it's particularly bad, although I found out recently over lunch that apparently Australian banks are, are doing some of these shenanigans as well. Um, first of all, there's kind of obvious stuff written into your contract. So at any point the bank can unilaterally raise the interest rates. Um, they can do things like they can suck you in with a low promotional rate. If you make a single low rate late payment, if you don't pay it off on time, then you go into a much higher rate and that rate doesn't reset. So even if you keep paying it off, the rate doesn't reset. Um, and there's also penalty rate agreements, which also don't reset. So that's the, 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 you know, sort of the fine print. Then there's very dubious things like double cycle billing, um, again, which I found out Australian, or at least some Australian banks do over lunch. Um, so instead of basing the interest rate calculations on the currently outstanding balance, they base it on something like the average of the last two. So if you've got a huge outstanding balance from the previous billing cycle and you pay it off, what you're paying off is the average of the huge outstanding balance that you've already paid off, but that's still being counted against your current amount. Um, 
if you've got multiple interest rates, like let's say a low-tier interest rate and a high-tier interest rate, and you pay the bank X amount, they pay off the low-tier one and keep charging you for the high-tier interest rate. Um, another thing, again, which US banks do, which I've also found on at least one Australian bank does, is they don't decline over the limit transactions. Normally, if you go over your credit limit, the card should be declined. Well, the banks don't do that because they hit you with a massive penalty rate. Um, so, yeah, there's all these probably not, well, let's say immoral or unethical billing practices that they do to get the maximum amount of money out of you. Um, and the nasty thing about this is that the banks have no incentive to fix this. You've got very low entry uh, barriers to credit card fraud. The problem is, if there's, a fr if there's fraud, the bank issues a chargeback to the merchant, so the merchant carries the cost, and the bank can hit the merchant with chargeback fees, and the bank can hit you with um, you know, penalty rates or something like that. So if this is done right, if the banks do it carefully, they can actually have fraud as a profit center, so they can make money out of fraud. It's cash flow positive, so they don't really have any particular incentive to fix this. Contactless credit cards um, are, even, are even scarier. So you've got all the previous stuff, and then you've got more. This is from an actual business plan um, from a company who's pushing these things. So the idea behind this is you've got contactless payments done via smartphones. You've got a hardware TPM, which or basically a souped-up smart card chip, inside the phone itself. Um, so you charge the users for the use of a key slot within the smart card. You charge them a percentage for each transaction. You charge the user for actually having the wallet storage in the phone, and then at the merchant you've got the same thing, and they're being charged for all this as well. Now, you know, if you look at these business plans, they're straight out of dot-com la-la land. I, don't, I can't imagine that people are going to go for this, but still, that's how this stuff is being peddled to the, the um, parties who are supposed to be using this stuff. And the thing about this is you have no idea where these RFID things are going to be ending up. Um, here's a great quote from someone who's done a lot of work in this. Um, how many people here actually going to get a show of hands? How many people have a contactless payment device like a card or a phone on them? Most of the audience. Okay. So are banks here promoting it actively, or is it just you happen to have looked at the card and noticed it's on there? You don't get a choice. Okay, but you are aware of it, whereas in the US it seems that it's been quietly rolled out without anyone being told about it. Um, yeah, so I guess this is kind of redundant that people already know they've got these things. If, uh, if this question got asked in the US, um, again from, from Kristen Paget's work, um, most of the audience had no idea that their cards actually had these contactless capabilities on them. This is bizarre. So this is my in New Zealand frequent flyer card, um, which basically is for you know, getting into airline lounges and what the, what, whatever. It also does, has a contactless credit card built into the back of it. Which is just, you know, one of the places where you absolutely do not want contactless credit cards or, you know, it's, so these are being basically put into everything, even places you would not expect. Any kind of plastic card, okay, we'll stick in a contactless credit card just because. Um, so the problem with this is with smart cards, you've got to f establish a physical channel to the card. So to pay with this, if it was contactless, I'd have to stick it into a reader, see something on the display, enter a pin. With a contactless card, there's no need for this physical channel. Um, the way it's being sold is you go up to a terminal and you tap it on the terminal, but you don't need to do this. You just need to put it somewhere near the terminal or someone walking close by you with a credit card skimmer can also get the same thing. So you've removed this, this sort of fundamental physical channel and this method of protection from these payment systems. Um, yeah, so basically it decouples the card from the reader itself. And this makes fraud much, much easier. I mean, one of the neat things you can do, if I'm plugging this into a um, card terminal, in front, in front of the merchant, unless the merchant is dishonest or the terminal's been trojaned or something like that, I'm pretty certain that that's going to be the real thing. With one of these devices that can be read remotely, 
the transaction can be processed through a relay device that then forwards it on to who knows where. This is in, in, the, in the crypto industry, this is known as a mafia fraud. So the idea is you pay for something, and you pay for pizza in New York, and the payment gets forwarded down to Colombia where it buys cocaine. Um, and there's a bunch of other names for it, the chess grandmaster attack. These have been known for years and years. So it, it's completely vulnerable to these relay attacks. So if you've got this, something like this being done with a passport, which is a similar RFID technology, in fact, these chips, these cards use basically the same chips, the same frequency, the same uh, signaling technology as the e-passports do. With a passport, if you want to spoof this um, using, let's say, a cell phone, and that's an example of a series of shots of a cell phone being used to clone an, uh, an e-passport. If you want to do that, if you come in through customs and you say, here's my passport, and you hand them a cell phone, the customs guys are kind of trained to detect things like that, and they probably won't let you in. They won't believe that that's actually a passport. On the other hand, with contactless payments, can you tell, is that a phone being used as a relay device to loot someone else's contactless card, or is that a legitimate payment? The, the device that's used for fraud is also the device that's used for legitimate payments. So you can't tell whether that's an attack or not. Um, something like this, was, like this was demonstrated in 2006 by some student using homebrew gear. He didn't use these specific cards running EMV. He used the same technology, ISO 14443 is the technology used in these cards, just not the same protocol. And he basically did a man in the middle attack and relayed the um, cryptographic communication off to a victim's card. Uh, that's another example of an attack being done on a MyFair card. So on the left there is a MyFair reader, sorry, the MyFair card. On the right is a MyFair reader, and in between are two um, tags that are taking the signal off the card and forwarding it to the reader. So as far as the card's concerned, it's talking to the genuine reader. As far as the reader's concerned, it's talking to the genuine card, but in fact it's being relayed through those two intermediate readers. Now obviously that's, that's one single, you know, the single laptop is controlling it, so it's all in one place, but those things could be on the other side of the world. Um, another example of this was demonstrated phone-based skimming without actually using, you know, abusing the card to make a payment was demonstrated at KiwiCon 2011, so it was late last year. The world's first mobile PCI-compliant credit card skimmer. Um, and the problem with these attacks is they're explicitly enabled by the use of this contactless interface. None of these things would be possible. If you had to stick this into a reader and, a con and it had to talk to the smart card in there, none of these attacks would be possible. This is all enabled by the use of this contactless interface. Um, okay, so what about EMV, which is, a, as I said, a cryptographic protocol? Um, so the cards themselves talk to the reader using the EMV protocol, which is a cryptographically authenticated and signed and all sorts of other things protocol that is reasonably secure. However, the readers then output that in plain text. There's no encryption, there's no security whatsoever, it just spits out the raw card details. You then take that, copy it onto a MagStripe card, and you've cloned the card. Um, the skimming-only attack, again, without that, that second stage of copying it to a MagStripe card, was demonstrated um, on TV in about 2008. Some guy got a reader off eBay for $8 and skimmed someone's card. The full attack was done live um, by Kristen Padgett in Shmoocon 2012. So there's two great quote, quotes there. First from the Smart Card Alliance, which is the industry group that pushes this stuff, um, saying it's of little to no use in creating fraudulent payment transactions, and then from MasterCard, and there's other card vendors who have said the same thing. It's unlikely you can do anything with this. At this point in the talk, Peter plays a short excerpt from a YouTube clip of Kristen Pageant at Schmoocon skimming an RFID card, creating a fraudulent MagStripe card uh, from the skim data, and then performing a transaction live uh, via Square. It's pretty good stuff. But you can Google for Schmoocon contactless generation uh, for the entire talk, or find a link to the video in the post for this podcast on risky.biz. I'll drop you back into Peter's talk now. 
Okay, so that's the link to the, to the full talk. It also talks about the ineffectiveness of shielding wallets and stuff like that. Uh, it is a very cool talk. It's definitely worth downloading and seeing the entire talk. So basically that was a live on-stage demonstration with an extremely reluctant volunteer um, of skimming one of these contactless cards, copying it to a MagStripe card and running a transaction against that, and yeah, it was approved. Um, and again, these kind of the usual disclaimers. In response to this talk, the Smart Card Alliance, the industry group, basically said that um, this isn't a new threat. We've known about this for a long time. Well, if you've known about this for a long time, why are you deploying technology that's vulnerable to it? Um, and again, consumers should be embracing this technology because it's making them safer for some very peculiar definition of safer. Um, phones do this slightly better. Um, Android. The thing with these cards is you can read these at any time you want. There's no on-off switch. There's no control or anything like that. Um, Android only allows this activity when the screen's powered up and the device is unlocked. So if you've got a phone, you have to be actually using the phone. It has to be unlocked. It has to be active and turned on. Uh, the downside is the logging of this is pretty hit and miss. Um, the logs are cleared on reboot, and it doesn't record that much data. So if you do get a fraudulent transaction, there's not that much of a record of it. BlackBerry, on the other hand, is just a straight emulation of one of these cards. Even when it's switched off and locked and whatever, it can still do it. Um, however, like RIM, the problem will probably eventually fade away. Um, and no, one, no one's really sure what, what Apple's up to. They're kind of playing their cards fairly close to the chest. So the US card vendors uh, took the easy way out. They don't seem to use EMV. They basically just send the track one and two data in plain text over the wireless interface. So it looks like a standard uh, MagStripe read. And there's a quote there from someone who analyzed it. Um, yeah, the full cardholder name and card expiration date will be sent in clear text in all transactions. Um, so you don't even need to speak EMV. Um, you can read it through the mailer when it's delivered. You can read it out of the wallet in your pocket. And again, there's an example of someone who did this as a demo for the New York Times. Um, so basically, he took, a, he took a card that came in the mail, skimmed the data off the, envelope, off, the, off the letter without opening it as it came through the mail, and then bought something online. He initially did it uh, with fairly primitive equipment. Basically, he took an antenna, plugged it into an oscilloscope, and actually decoded the bits off the, the wireless signal. Um, and then eventually he built a homebrew reader and emulator. The thing is with, these, with the protocols is at the time, you know, the card vendors are going to tell you we're using this highly secure protocol. He didn't believe them, so he looked at the protocol, but first he had to reverse engineer the protocol. And that's how he found out they were just doing this stuff in plain text. Um, these are freely available. There's an example of a um, tag emulator you can buy. It's slightly bigger than a packet of cigarettes. Um, everything's open source. You can get the files online or you can buy the uh, pre-built version of the emulators. It's a more sophisticated one, fully programmable. These things are really cool. Unfortunately, they're very expensive. Um, but it's a software-defined radio, so you can basically get this thing to do any kind of signaling you want. Um, so Mythbusters wanted to do an episode of this um, on basically RFID credit card security flaws. Now, the reports of exactly went down there vary, but apparently they got very frighteningly intimidated and decided that they just they couldn't go ahead. The legal threats were sufficient, sufficiently scary that they decided they weren't going to do this episode at all. The story kind of changes over time, but whatever, whatever it is, something very scary happened to them to convince them that they shouldn't actually expose these security issues on the air. Um, another thing, another um, news outlet, um, Channel 3 News in Memphis, had someone simply walking up and down the street looking for RFID chips to read and did something similar. So I've actually been doing something. Was the person who stood next to me in the lift and said, your bag is beeping? Is he here? <laughs> no. Well, don't stand close to me with an RFID card. Um, but the, yeah, so this, so this is one of the, this is, this is again my frequent flyer card. Um, this is an even scarier one. This is Australia Post are selling, these are basically cash equivalent cards, so they work exactly like cash. But unlike cash, you don't have to actually pick someone's pockets, you just stand near them somewhere. 
um, and grab the information off this, and provided you spend the information you've leached off this before they do, um, you're okay. And there is an online recording thing you can go to, but by that time it's already too late because it's gone. Uh, if anyone wants to have their wallet scanned, well, I, I should say actually, since, since apparently there are members of the law enforcement community present, I must say that this is not connected to anything. Um, I, I'm just carrying the reader around by itself. I do not have it plugged into a laptop. I'm not recording anything. You can come up and check the cable to see that it's not plugged in. It's basically to demonstrate that you can carry one of these things around in your bag and skim people's cards. Okay, yeah, and so there's some examples of quotes um, from banks saying, you know, this uses strong encryption. Again, I emphasize that this is for US banks, not banks in the rest of the world which use EMV, um, where they said we use strong encryption, the strongest encryption allowed by the US government. Um, so these guys, for all the cards they tested, they couldn't find any that actually had any encryption being used, even though the banks claimed they were all encrypted. Um, and the same things have been found in a bunch of other RFID tokens. Um, I kind of skipped these. So these are just examples of people's people cloning other types of cards. Unfortunately, this is relatively common for RFID devices, and in fact, embedded devices in general. Um, and again, there's a quote from this analysis of these things, that although they're widely claimed to use uh, sophisticated encryption, all the ones we found didn't seem to have any encryption. And emphasizing again, this was in the US, not in countries like Australia and other countries, where they do use EMV, as far as we can tell. Having said that, no one's looked at it that closely. The fact that the reader reads it doesn't necessarily mean that it's doing EMV correctly. So the scary thing is you have no way of knowing what lurks inside these things. If you're plugging one of these cards into a legitimate reader, then both the card and the reader are assumed to be on your side. The card is issued by your bank. They're not going to try and rip you off or attack you. The reader is issued by you know, people certified by the bank or whatever. They're on your side. If you've got a hostile reader that's trying to attack this card, you don't know what capabilities are inside this card. Uh, one great, great example is the fast track uh, RFID toll passes used in the US. So a researcher looked at them and found out that they were writable. Um, and this is kind of the understatement of the century. Fast Track is probably not aware of this. So basically you can take these, these transponders and rewrite, rewrite them and clone other people's tags into them. So you walk into a parking lot, you grab a copy of someone else's transponder because they're remotely readable, you clone it into your transponder. That means whenever you're going on a toll road, they're paying for it rather than you. Um, yeah, and there's, there's again a, a comment from MIT Technology Review which reported on this, basically saying the vendors have said that they're safe, but in fact they're not. And that's pretty much like the missing encryption in, in some of these contactless credit cards. The vendors claim they're there, and they probably assume they're there. In fact, here's a quote, um, a wonderful quote from an industry publication that covers this. Um, this guy's obviously an amateur. The only research you need to do to establish whether you can write these things is to go to the website of the manufacturer. Everyone in the business knows that these things aren't writable. So the industry, the, the industry representatives don't actually know what their own devices do. Um, yeah, if he hasn't even established that these things are read-only, he's totally unqualified to be talking about potential issues. Well, again, these guys were unaware what their own technology, their own hardware did. So the industry experts didn't know, and the, the vendors pushing it didn't know what their own technology did. And that's why I mentioned the fact that, you know, the, the plugging antenna into an oscilloscope was a useful analysis, because even if the vendors claim that we've got these security measures, until someone, a, th a third party, looks at these and, see, and checks to see that they're actually present, you have no idea whether what the vendor claims is actually there or not. So, okay, there's a protection mechanism, which the banks will tell you. On the back of each of the cards, of, of each of your cards, is a three-digit number called a CVV, Cryptographic Verification Value. Um, and typically on a credit card, it's printed on there and it doesn't change. With these things, when you read them, it changes on each read. So in theory, you get a unique CVV, well, not in theory, in practice, you get the credit card number and a unique CVV per read. 
defeating this is pretty simple. You just read the card multiple times. So you, you take 10 reads, you've got 10 CVVs, and you've got, then got 10 transactions. You can authorize use that, using that. The standard magstripe fraud is you take one card and you use it multiple times. It doesn't work in this case because the CVV is only valid once, and the card disables itself if the CVV is reused. To get around that, instead of doing, let's say, 10 charges on one card, you get 10 cards and put one charge against each of them. Um, another thing is the fraud checking is very simplistic. And again, this is demonstrated in Kristen's talk where she does, using this even more reluctant by this point volunteer, um, basically just run repeated transactions against the card until it's disabled. At that point, you know exactly what the bank is doing in terms of fraud triggers. And in Kristen's case, she found out that you run three transactions against the same card from the same card terminal, and the card gets disabled. So, okay, from now on, do not run three transactions against the same card from the same card terminal. You've figured out what the bank's um, fraud response is, and you just avoid doing that. Um, so basically, the, the banks are effectively telling you what they're doing in terms of fraud detection, because you've got an infinite, well, not an infinite, but let's say a large number of cards. You can afford to burn a couple of them to figure out by trial and error what the bank's going to do. Once you know that, and that obviously that will circulate in the underground, um, then you can walk around that. So, okay, we sh we'll shield them. Well, the problem is that shielding doesn't actually work that well. Typically, vendors claim that there's this vast amount of attenuation and that these things are Faraday cages. Well, they're not actually earthed to anything. So they're not really Faraday cages. They're just, they provide some attenuation. They reduce the strength of the signal. To get around this, increase the signal strength. Um, and again, Kristen Padgett, again, has done, she's done a huge amount of work on this. So she found that simply standard shielding cages that vendors are selling, or bags, sorry, metalized bags that vendors are selling, have a 50 decibel factor between the worst and the best, so a factor of 100,000 in shielding effectiveness between the worst and the best shields. And it depends on a bunch of other things. The frequency, 125 kilohertz cards, which are prox cards typically used for access control, they're almost impossible to shield. Um, she could found one single product that stopped an unmodified reader from reading an unmodified tag. Even then, to get through the shielding, just increase the power output, and the attenuation provided by the bag is cancelled out, and so you can still read straight through it. Another neat thing is that 13.56 megahertz, uh, which is the frequency that these things occupy, the frequency that these things operate at, is right next to the 14 megahertz amateur band. And I think 14 megahertz is one half kilowatts, or is it one kilowatt maximum power output? Certainly, you know, more than the couple of milliwatts that one of these readers is putting out. So you can pretty much overcome any shielding. Except that one problem with this is if you output even like 10 watts will kill a card. You're just overwhelming it with too much power or 20 watts, so you've got to be careful with that. But apart from that, um, you know, any amount of power is fine. Okay, so some countries looked at this, and after lots of complaints from people about putting these things into passports, they said, we'll put uh, foil inserts into passports. Um, the thing is, what happens when you put a foil shield behind an active element? You basically get a dish antenna. So if it's pressed right up against this on both sides, you get some attenuation. If you've got this active element and then this huge foil reflector behind it, you've got a really effective dish antenna. Um, and again, you put it in your wallet, you've got a few banknotes and other bits and pieces in your wallet between the card and the foil, and you've created that effect. It's a standard trick used with cheap wireless gear. There's a bunch of homebrew wireless extenders where the, you just put anything metallic behind the wireless antenna, and it extends the range. Um, this is another neat thing. If you look at some of the documents with this, for example, the, the chip readers, um, the document has to be placed within inches of one of these readers. It's not allowed to be read any further than that because they say so. Um, and there have been a bunch of attacks demonstrated where people have read them over much, much larger distances, like Cards Asia. This was in 2005, I think. So they intercepted the reader communications from five metres away. And the terminal itself, the terminal is the active, development, active element, so this reader that beams out all the power, um, could be intercepted from 25 metres away. 
And there's a whole bunch of these things on long-range RFID. Uh, we use bigger antennas, better antennas, better radio systems. Again, these are, these are the cheapest possible components built with the crappiest possible antennas and the cheapest possible everything. And yeah, so they work over five to 10 centimeters. You use better components, better antennas, more power, and that range limit is gone. Now, again, a wonderful quote here. The specification permits chips to be read within 10 centimetres. They're not permitted to be read over longer distances. Unfortunately, the chips don't know that, and so they're quite happy to let themselves be read over long distances. Um, and again, there's, there's comments from bank vendors saying that th these are only very short distances, so it's okay because you're not allowed to read them over longer distances. So here's a quick quiz. Um, these are some common wireless technologies that are supposed to be safe because they're relatively short distance. Um, anyone want to take a guess at the maximum effective ranges for some of these technologies? I'll give you a clue for the first one. The, the limit for the first one is actually the curvature of the Earth. Um, if you put it on top of two really tall mountains, one in Italy and one in Sardinia, you can get a range of 300 kilometres, as opposed to, say, 50 metres or whatever. Uh, for Bluetooth, it's 1.8 kilometres. You can't actually see the attacker in the background standing on that pier. Um, but that, and again, it's a standard unmodified Bluetooth phone being hijacked or bluejacked from 1.8 kilometres away. Um, EPC tags, 217 feet. Again, as I mentioned, Kristen Paget's done a, long, a lot of work on this, and that was limited by clutter in the test environment. There was a, a metal fence and other metal elements in the area which were screwing it up. Um, for these things, probably 10 to 20 metres, no one's actually tried to determine a maximum range yet in too much detail. But, you know, for skimming it, 20 centimetres is okay. If you're standing next to someone at a conference or in a lift, 20 centimetres is okay. Um, and yeah, there's some examples on wireless attacks. So the thing with the implementations is they tend to be relatively vulnerable. Um, I'm going to skip this because it's just a bunch of, it's getting onto successively geekier attacks. I mean, skimming is so easy, I don't know why anyone would bother to do this. But these are examples of implementation flaws in smart cards. Now, these things make SCADA systems look good in comparison. Um, I, a friend of mine who works, who actually writes smart card firmware, said that the, the sort of the joking definition of an industry expert is someone who knows how to work around all the bugs in the cards to not make them crash. Um, and yeah, there's some examples of some of the silly things that cards, or that cards have been found to do in practice. Um, the parsers are incredibly brittle, so Lukas Grunwald, who's a German researcher, um, actually modified the JPEG 2000 image in passports to do an injection attacks on the passport readers. Um, and again, there's lots of examples of people doing fun things like this. The thing is, is anyone going to exploit this? Well, at the moment, and certainly to someone who went to um, Mikko Hipponen's talk in the morning, it's just not worth skimming these things because it's much easier to just buy this stuff online. It's just not enough of a target. There's a much easier way to get a credit card data than going around skimming them. On the other hand, UK banks in the um, 1990s, or 1980s and 1990s, had a serious problem with so-called white card fraud. So people were copying the information off the discarded credit card slips onto just white cards and using them to loot, loot accounts. And the bank's position with this was always, our systems are infallible, therefore it must be customer fraud. And there were some really terrible miscarriages of justice. People lost their jobs. There was a, a constable, the PC Munden case, who lost his job as a police officer. Um, I think he was on holiday in Spain and his card was used in the UK. There's no way it could have been done. But the bank said, um, you know, it's fraud by this guy. And if it, the courts believed the banks. Families were broken up. A standard thing, the banks would say, one of your children must have used it. Your wife did it without telling you, something like that. Um, and eventually there was a, a bunch of court decisions in the late 90s that forced the banks to acknowledge that there was a serious problem. And chip and pin is what came out of that. So it was a, basically a way of fixing the fact that the courts had found that the bank systems weren't secure. Um, 
So some of you of it is that it's being rolled out, okay, I guess in Australia not so quietly, in the US very quietly. Um, you've got this vast range of attacks that were never possible because you're removing the physical channel, you're removing this direct physical, not only the physical channel, the fact that in order to, for me to make a payment, I have to pull the card out of my wallet, plug it into a device. Now someone standing near me can do the same thing with no physical action necessary. Um, so a good analogy for this is you're handing your credit card out, card out to anyone in the vicinity. Or another analogy, if you want to think of terms of implementation vulnerabilities, you're taking a SCADA system and plugging it into the public internet, which is effectively what these cards are, although they're less secure than SCADA systems. Uh, do I have time for questions, or is that...? Okay, a couple of very quick questions. It's so, the, so if you hold these up to a torch, a very bright torch, you can actually see the aerial, the antenna running around the inside of this thing. So typically, the, you can't put it in a microwave because that would also destroy the chip, which destroys its utility. If you were to hypothetically, and I'm not advocating that people do this, if you were hypothetically to shine a very bright torch through the back of this, you'll see a wire running around the outside of it. And then theoretically, you could just drill through it at that point, which will break the antenna. And at that point, it can't receive any RF energy, so you've disabled the RF component. But I'm not advocating that people destroy their credit cards, and you didn't hear this from me. Uh, microwaving is kind of risky. Um, you microwave it for one to two seconds, it will destroy the electronics, including the chip, so you can't make chip payments anymore. Beyond that, there's a risk of setting it on fire. I, oh, sorry. Um, the question was, what context-sensitive uh, monitoring systems detect this? They're, they're no better or no worse than detecting existing credit card fraud. Um, so in terms of the banks, you know, the standard thing that the banks will say is we've never had any fraud with this, with one of these things. The response to this is how would you know? You have no way of detecting whether this is happening. So unless the criminals are sending you signed affidavits saying we, we took it off, you know, we wished this off the internet rather than getting it out of this card, the banks can't even detect whether this fraud is happening. So. Um, we don't know, but certainly it's going to be no better, but also no worse than um, existing, you know, plastic mag stripe or chip-based fraud detection systems. Yep. Both? Um, no, I, I don't. I can't. I don't want to sort of impute sort of reasons onto vendors. I, I really don't know. Um, I, some, I, I think it's a feeling of, it's, it's probably just bureaucracy. There are probably, like in any security industry, there are going to be a bunch of geeks down at the low level screaming at the top of their voices, this isn't secure, we should be fixing this. And management which is saying, this is a wonderful business opportunity, we've got the business case modelled out, and this will ignore this noise in the background. I think it's, it's probably mostly that. That, that you know, like anywhere, there are people, who, technical people who know that it's a problem, but they can't get, make themselves heard by the upper levels. Okay, one more. You can't, yeah, that, that'll be enough against, against simple skimming attacks, and that should be enough. The problem is, well, there's several. First of all, it's, it's like the you know, magnetic shielding bags. It's going to attenuate it to some extent. Um, at some point, you've got to take it out of the tinfoil, and then you'll forget to put it back in the tinfoil. You'll stick it into your back pocket. The main problem is, why are banks rolling out this thing that's fundamentally insecure in the first place? Um, the other, well, the, the, the other problem is that, you know, it's not, the card to reader communications using, is uses EMV, so it's, it's quite, well, relatively secure. The problem is the reader spits it out in plain text. So it's, to some extent, it's a problem with the readers that, that the, 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 the card can talk encrypted all the way back to the bank, but it doesn't. It's being intercepted 
long before it ever gets to the bank, and that's the actual problem with this. And also the problem, obviously, that you've got relay attacks and skimming attacks where I, you know, relay the information from your card onto my purchase. 